Our New Testament passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Our sermon text this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, but uh, we're going to read the commandments that precede it as well as the preface. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Testing this thing out. Never used it before. Probably should have done that before I got up here. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, uh, the last few weeks we have been studying the Ten Commandments. And We have looked not just at what the commandments are, but how we as Christians are supposed to approach them. And this is one of those verses, uh, the one we just read from the New Testament, that we really haven't had a chance to bring up yet, but one that is crucial for us if we're going to understand these commandments. We need to know this before we go any further. I'm talking about Matthew 5, 17. That verse from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Really close to the beginning of that sermon, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now this is one of the most glorious words that we could ever hear as we start to study the Ten Commandments. Christ has fulfilled the law. Now, a lot of times, hopefully all the time when we're preaching, we talk about how Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live, how he perfectly kept the commandments in our place. But what we're told here is it's not just that he kept the commandments, but that he is the fulfillment of the commandments. So that means as we start to study this, as we start to get our minds around these commands, we're going to find that, that he is the one who brings them to perfect completion. That in a sense, he's the point 
of these commandments. So that's how I want us to study this commandment today, this third commandment. I want us to ask three questions. What does it mean to study this law? What is this law? What's it all about? Then how do we obey this law? Finally, how does Christ fulfill this law for us? So that's where we're going. What does this law mean? How do we obey this law? And how does Christ fulfill this law for us? So what does it mean? Of all the commandments, I think the third commandment might be the one that we are least likely to pay attention to. Do you think that's fair? I think we do that because we don't really get this one. I mean, is it, is it about swearing? And if it is about swearing, is that really that important? In our modern minds, we look at the third commandment, it kind of, compared to the other ones, it seems quaint almost. It's not like some of these other laws. If you murder, if you steal, if you commit adultery, those are, are big sins. Those have major consequences. But if you use the Lord's name in vain, what, what's going to happen? And maybe your, your mom will wash your mouth out with soap, right? Well, think about this. The third commandment says... At the end, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The third commandment is the only commandment that says that. Of course, it would fit at the end of all of them, right? The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who worships idols or who commits adultery. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who murders, but he singles this one out. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Why does he do that? Well, it's because of what I'm talking about. It's our, it's our tendency to minimize this one, to trivialize it, to make it seem like it's not such a big deal. So let me briefly try to lay out what this really means, why this is a big deal. But first of all, for us to understand that, we need to understand the idea of the name of God. When scripture says the name of God, it's not just talking about the syllables, not just the letters, not just the sounds that we make to refer to God. In fact, God is referred to by a lot of different names in scripture. We call him God, Elohim. We call him the Lord, Adonai. We call him Father. We call him Abba. His personal name that he gives to Moses is Yahweh. I am that I am. But when scripture speaks of the name of God, it's more than just a word. God's name has an entire reality behind it. God's name has a complete reality that comes along with it. Let me give you a couple of examples, because the truth is, human names are kind of like this too. My kids right now are at this phase where they are kind of constantly having some kind of altercation. I think they're at the, the prime age for bickering right now. And so in our house, almost all the time, there's something happening. And I can't tell you how many times, even in the last few months, that I've overheard something where the kids are fighting upstairs, 
one of them comes down and says to Melissa, my wife, you know, so-and-so keeps changing the music. And then Melissa says, you need to take turns. And so a few minutes later, you hear upstairs, Mom says it's my turn! <laughs> now, why do they do that? Well, because they know that that name brings with it some power. That name brings authority with it. Mom makes that little declaration. It gives it some weight that it didn't have before, right? It's my turn, Mom says. Or maybe you've had the opportunity to be referred to a business in the community by someone else or a club or something like that. And the person says, when you go there, tell them I sent you. Now, when they do that, what happens? When you come to a business you've never been to before with another person's name, well, you instantly have a reputation. You instantly have a history there. You instantly get a leg up. You move ahead of the line, right? Through no effort of your own, there is a relationship there because names carry power. Names carry a history. Names bring relationship. Or another example, this past year, perhaps you remember the story of Breonna Taylor. She was a young woman who was killed in her home when the police raided it, searching for her former boyfriend. And in the aftermath of that, as people were, were protesting that event, people printed out shirts. And do you remember what the shirts said on the front? They said, say her name. Now, why was that? Well, it's because that name brought with it the weight of reality. That personal name moved the discussion out of the realm of the theoretical, out of the realm of the political, and instead made it about a life, made it about a person, a family who had dreams and aspirations that were no more. Name represented the totality of her life. Well, the name of God is like that, but of course, much more so. The name of God invokes his power. The name of God brings the history of his relationship with us. The name of God, it encompasses all of who he is. His whole being. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a British preacher that I, I really love, uh, he defines it this way. He says, the name of God means all that is true of God. It has been revealed concerning God. It means God in all his attributes. It's God in all that he is, in and of himself, and God in all he has done, and all that he is doing. Now here's something interesting. As God's people, we in the church always carry God's name with us. As Christians, we always bear God's name. When we act, we act in God's name. When we speak, we speak in God's name. When we live our lives in this community, we live them in God's name. 
And so that means that the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, well, it's not so much about swearing. Now, swearing is in there. It falls under the third commandment, but it's really about every single way that we misuse the name of God. The third commandment is really about hypocrisy. It's about the sin of having God's name on your lips, but not in your heart. The third commandment is the sin of having God's name on your lips, but not in your heart. And that means it is a command that forbids people from speaking or acting in any way that would bring God dishonor. It's a command that requires that God's people live lives of integrity, that live lives of consistency, lives that actually bring him glory, that would exalt his name. So that's the basics of what the third commandment means. The next question then is, how do we keep this law? I think my clicker is dying, so I'm going to turn that over. <laughs> how do we keep this law? All right, are you guys ready for this? Do you remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching and I said, as we start to study these laws, we're going to find out that there is a lot more in here than we thought at first? Well, it's, it's time to buckle up. Because <laughs> we are about to slam headfirst into a wall of God's holiness as we get to the bottom of this. Let's just start at the basics. What does this law forbid? Well, we've already said it forbids misusing the name of God. So that, of course, does mean cursing, using the Lord's name as a curse word. It means off-color jokes. But a more common way that we misuse the name of God is when we take God's name and use it to serve our own ends. It happens when we wield the name of God as a weapon to win arguments. We use God's name in vain when, instead of submitting ourselves to his word in humility, in fear, in reverence, we sift through it and we, we find those passages that we can take out of context to prove our point, to punish people, to get a one-up over the people we disagree with. We use God's name in vain when we promote wrong ideas about God, when we teach false doctrines about God, or when we overemphasize certain aspects of God that we like, but then we de-emphasize those aspects we don't like so much. See, this commandment is about representing God correctly. When we speak of him, of course, but not just when we speak of him. It goes on to say even when we think of him, that we represent him correctly. It's about knowing and worshiping the true and living God. Instead of treating God as an object, or an idea that we can manipulate to accomplish our own purposes. And if you don't think that's a major problem in the church today, you're not paying attention. 
I think this might be one of our biggest problems in the church today. One of the greatest ways that we do this, the one of the greatest places that we take the name of the Lord in vain today is in the realm of politics. We have two political parties here in the United States. And it just so happens that this time last year, I lived in a town where almost everyone identified with one of them. And now I've moved across the country to another town where almost everyone identifies with the other. And you know what I have found in both places? Christians who say that their party of choice is the one God approves of. Christians who will actually invoke the name of God to promote their political desires. And here is my prophetic word for us this morning. If you look out at the political landscape today, if you can look out and you only see the flaws in the opposition, if you cannot see how the party that you prefer, whichever one it may be, is wildly out of step with God's will, then you are being more effectively discipled by cable news than by the word of God. You are being more conformed into the likeness of late night talk show hosts and drive time to the likeness of Jesus. If you use God for political ends, then you're taking his name in vain. And you need to repent. And just in case that one doesn't hit home close enough, let's keep going here. Amos. Anybody read Amos lately? (laughs) The book of Amos starts out with God speaking words of condemnation over the pagan nations. As you read into the book, in chapter 2, he changes his focus and he sets his sight on Israel, on his own people. And here's the word that God has for Israel in Amos chapter 2. He says, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. At the end of that passage, God says, my name is profaned by this. He says, holy name is desecrated, not just by the way we use his name in our speaking, but also when the people who bear his name live unholy lives. When God's people are known for hoarding wealth, for denying justice to the oppressed, for sexual immorality. He says his name is misused. His name is profaned by that. 
Now that Amos passage, it's kind of shocking to me. Because as I think about that, I think about that critique of, of ancient Israel for being greedy, for, for being unjust, for being immoral. Those things still plague the church today, don't they? Is that not exactly how the world perceives the church? As a bunch of hypocrites? People who profess the name of God with their lips, but whose actions tell a totally different story. Well, are they crazy to think that? Are they just completely mistaken? I don't think so. You know, what's, what's amazing to me is I finished my first draft of this sermon on Wednesday. And then the next day, I read about all this stuff with Ravi Zacharias. Did anybody hear this? This extremely influential preacher who died a few months ago. This teacher whose theology was, was rock solid who traveled the globe declaring the greatness of God and yet whose life was secretly filled with the abuse of countless women. Ravi Zacharias has profaned the name of God. But my question is, what would the world think of us if all our secrets came out? See, we have to admit that just like Israel, we have profaned the name of God with our lukewarm obedience. We have profaned the name of God by choosing which parts of the law we're really going to care about and which ones we're going to mostly ignore. We've profaned the name of God by being silent when we see injustice by patting ourselves on the back when we give the bare minimum to the poor. We profane the name of God when we sing on Sunday about how much more of Jesus we want, and then Monday through Saturday we just go home and consume filth. We have all horribly misused the name of God. And how does this passage end? What does it say? The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's pretty heavy. So I think we need to ask, how then does Christ fulfill the law? That's the bad news, right? The bad news is that when we get down to it, the simplest of the laws, the, the one that seems the easiest to keep, is actually so heavy that we are crushed by the weight of it. No one can look deeply into that law and say, I'm doing fine on this one. Let's go to the next. But there is some good news for us. The good news... <coughs> is that God sent his son, Jesus, for sinners like us. And do you know that 
we are just as guilty of misusing God's name by living in a way that doesn't represent his holiness. That's one way we misuse his name. But another way that we do it is by failing to believe God for who he is. To believe that he really is a God of abundant mercy. A God of grace. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, it's the story of the Last Supper. And there's this great prayer that Jesus prays over his disciples. And in the beginning of that prayer, there is this beautiful verse that I want to bring out to you this morning. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. You hear that first part? Jesus prays, and he says, I have manifested your name. See, we are a people, and we are so prone to get it wrong. We are constantly taking the Lord's name in vain by the ways we speak about him flippantly, but also in the ways we think about him wrongly and and the way that we live inconsistently and so portray him poorly to others. But Jesus came as our Savior, and the Scripture says that, well, first of all, he did keep this law. He kept it when we couldn't. He upheld its requirements, and he avoided its prohibitions. You look at the life of Jesus, and you see Jesus revered the name of God. Jesus worshipped the name of God. And when he taught us how to pray, you know what he said? He said, we need to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be treated as holy by the whole earth. Jesus lived a life that glorified God from start to finish. He kept the law. But he also fulfilled the law. He did more than just honor the name of God. What does that passage say? It says Jesus was the name of God made manifest. That Jesus came to eliminate any confusion that there might be about who God is. He came to show us once and for all who God is and how he relates to us. See, in our sin, we're stuck. Apart from God, we are stuck. We are hopelessly stuck misusing and misunderstanding the name of God. We cannot possibly know God as he truly is. So in Christ, the name of God became flesh and blood. He says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me. And if that's not awesome enough, (laughs) the same God who says, that he would not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, that God took our guilt on his shoulders. Do you realize on the cross, the one who perfectly manifest the name of God was killed
And a few verses later, Jesus continues to pray and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Can you get your mind around that? Do you understand what that means? In your name. Jesus is saying that that anyone who comes to him for salvation is not only made free from the guilt of misusing his name, but we are actually covered by his name. Through Jesus, God has chosen to give us his name as our own name. This terrifying, this untouchable Yahweh. I am that I am. He's chosen to let that be our our personal name, our family name. See, God has chosen to forever identify himself with the people that he saved. He says, Not only I am that I am, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Logan, the God of Gail, the God of John, the God of Jubilee. And that's where the power is. You see, that... That is how Christ transforms this commandment for us. The third commandment says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But how can we possibly, if it's our name too? And I just want to take a moment and say, if you're here this morning... And you are one of those people that have been wounded by the way the church has misrepresented the name of God. I want to be the first to say, I'm sorry. And I want to beg you this morning as you hear this passage to know that the failures of God's people, that's not the same as a failure of God. Yahweh will never fail you. And even now, he is inviting you to come to him and to find the strength that can only be found in his mighty name. And I also want to challenge all of us. As we think about this commandment, I want to challenge you to pray that this week, the Holy Spirit would let you take hold of this reality. That we would know that in Christ, we rest securely in the name of God. I want to challenge you this week, instead of misusing the name of God, to rejoice in the name of the Lord your God. Rather than making him an object rather than using him for your own selfish ends, I want us to pray that we would become the kind of people who 
proclaim the name of the Lord, who sing the name of the Lord, who wake up in the morning with the name of the Lord on our lips, and not just our lips, but, but in our hearts, guiding our lives, propelling our actions. And you know, I believe that he will do that. Would you pray that with me? Let's go before the Lord. Lord, you tell us, you command us, you forbid us from using your name in an inappropriate way, for taking you lightly and making you small. Father, I pray you forgive us because we are all guilty. There are many dark corners in our lives that need to be exposed by the light of your love and grace. We need to be cleansed of our sin. We long for your righteousness. Father, I pray you'd forgive us as a church for any way we have misrepresented you to the world. Any way we have profaned you. And Father, I pray that you would change us. God, I pray you would make us the kind of people who lift your name high. I pray you'd make us the kind of church that when people enter it, they immediately know that we serve the living and true God. Father, I pray you'd be with us this week, that this word would not slip away from us as we walk out of here today, but that you'd let it sit in our hearts and that your spirit would transform us and change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.